I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. This is The Literary Life. I'm Mitchell Kaplan. I've owned books and books and been a bookseller for over 35 years. What you're about to hear are conversations about all things literary, with writers, readers, publishers, old friends, new friends, and anyone who might wander into our store with an interesting story to tell about their connection to books, reading, or writing. These will be informal, over-the-backyard-fence kind of conversations, the kind I and booksellers everywhere have each and every day. Gerald has published a brand new book, amazing book, you know, in the style of what Gerald Posner does, which is heavily researched, incredibly encyclopedic, um, but mostly um, filled with, a, you know, he creates a narrative and is able to dissect the subject so that when you finish reading, you go... You know, I've lived my whole life hearing all about this, but I never knew all the ins and outs of it. And his new book is called Pharma, Greed, Lies, and the Poisoning of America. And it's really about the, the birth of the pharmaceutical age and the pharmaceutical companies. Uh, it starts at the turn of the century. Uh, he talks about Bayer. He talks about it from all over the world. And... We'll get to it at the end, but one of his last sentences has to do with a pandemic. And, and um, so welcome, Gerald, to The Literary Life. All of us as uh, writers, we sort of uh, live in fear that our book will be published and some big cataclysmic event will take place and knocks you off the front pages. Uh, Jeff Tubin, a friend of mine, you know, put out his book on the Supreme Court on 910 2001, and the next day was 9-11. They had to republish that book a year later because no one heard of it. Uh, you know, that's the worst possible example. But you're always thinking, and I know I'm publishing into the 2020 election. That was my big concern. Here's a book, it's a history of the American pharmaceutical industry. 
March 10th was set as the publication date in December. Uh, and uh, we published on March 10th. The next day, the World Health Organization declares coronavirus a pandemic. And we are often running into the world of, uh, uh, you know, the pandemic, which is new to all of us. Uh, so the book tour, nine cities canceled uh, appearances. It, you know, thank goodness you were able to make my time at Books and Books at least virtual, but everything turns around and the favorite places, the places that are my heart and soul now in Miami Beach, like Books and Books, your doors are closed. So it's it's a new world for all of us, but I will tell you that publishing into the pandemic was um, an event I won't forget, nor would I want to repeat uh, very soon. No, you. I'm, I'm sure you don't. Um, give us a little bit of a, you know, why this book? Why now? Because you started writing this way before the pandemic. So tell us what was some of your motivation for kind of approaching the pharmaceutical industry. I'm very, very lucky to find a publisher in Simon Schuster, Avid Reader Press this time, who allows me to go into a subject about which I know nothing, and there are plenty of those, and sort of start from the ground up on working on an area that I think is going to be interesting. And I had this idea for a book on pharma back in the, in literally the 90s when an old investigative journalist, Jim Phelan, then 85, used to do, he was the guy who exposed the hoax of the autobiography of Howard Hughes with Clifford Irving. I asked him once what he would do. I'd do one on the drug business. He said, it's like throwing a dart at a board. There are a ton of great stories, a ton of great narratives. That sort of sat in the back of my mind. And I finally proposed this to the publisher in 2015. And you understand publishing. They said to me, okay, it gave me enough. Tricia was doing a book, my wife, on the pharmacist of Auschwitz that helped to pay the bills when she published that in 2017. But pretty much they were banking on me coming up with a story. And they don't know what it's going to be until I return. And, you know, the narrative spine here ended up being the Sackler family, who we've heard about with Purdue, but it's sort of the story about them before that time, before OxyContin existed, what made the Sacklers the Sacklers. And then it's the story, as you said, of these things in the drug industry we thought we knew, and it turns out we didn't. Time and time again, I'd be startled at something I'd come across um, that I now realize is the DNA of the pharma business. Tell me some of the more startling things that you found. I think that, the, the, I mean, from the time I didn't realize, I should have realized that before we had the first law to regulate drugs or food in 1906, the Pure Food and Drug Act, it was the Wild West. So that, that meant Everything that was being sold, morphine was legal, no prescription, cocaine was involved in, and mixed into all the drugs. Sears and Roebuck, the biggest catalog in the country, was selling a hypodermic needle and a pure little solution of cocaine for $1.50, a cannabis and everything. Bayer, wonderful Bayer, had the research scientists had found in 1898 acetaminophen, which we know is Tylenol. The next year, the same team found aspirin. Uh, and then in 1900, they found heroin, which they named after the German word for Hiroshima, and they marketed it worldwide. It was a big seller for them. And then three years later, they came up with a whole new class of drugs, barbiturates, and their, their branded name was phenobarbital. So they, Bayer has phenobarbital, no prescriptions required. Everything's over the counter. Phenobarbital, heroin, aspirin and Tylenol. And the only one they didn't put to market was Tylenol because they deemed it too toxic. So you think <laughs> it's not a strange time. Uh, and then the law comes and in 1914, they ban narcotics under the Harrison Act. So most of the ingredients used in drugs disappear. 
Then we go into the crazy experiment with prohibition. So the alcohol is gone. That was the base in a lot of the drugs. And the drug industry is in stasis. It doesn't know what to do. It's a little tiny industry, not even listed as a, a popular one on Moody's or a big one. And what changes the whole industry is World War II and penicillin becomes the second secret project behind the Manhattan Project and the atomic bomb. The government pulls 10 pharma companies together, gives them hundreds of millions of dollars to produce massive amounts of this new wonder drug, saves all the lives in the battlefield, and pharma emerges into the 1950s as suddenly a conglomerate and a powerhouse. Besides Bayer, who were some of the large companies uh, back in those days that emerged because they all the, the American ones so American drug companies start really around the time of the Civil War and it turns out Pfizer are two German cousins who uh, take out a $2,500 loan and have a thousand dollars in savings and open up a plant in Brooklyn um, Edward Squibb Robinson is a uh, colonel in the Union Army uh, who was throwing over supplies of morphine during the war because it was contaminated and opens up a, a rival firm. Uh, Pfizer, not only the Pfizer, but you have Squibb, Welcome and Burroughs were, were real people at the same time. And you even had Park and Davis. One was the head of a health department in Detroit and the other was sort of a promoter. So the real names that we came to know in later years, the Wyeth cousins, form around the Civil War because of one thing, morphine. There's a tremendous demand for morphine they all jump into the morphine business. And so one of the things you realize is the, the start of the American drug industry was really based upon addictive products. The story ends many decades later with OxyContin and the opioid crisis. But when you get there, Mitch, you're not surprised anymore because you realize that this isn't the only way that things happen. They come up with a lot of wonderful drugs that save lives. But you understand that their roots came from the addictive products and then they've gone on to other things over time but they have a certain pattern as to how they market, what they move, and how they sell things. And that's the part I think that is the most eye-opening. Um, profits come ahead of uh, patients often, most of the time. People in the pharmaceutical industry, the relationship of the private companies um, with the CDC and the, the, the groups that are supposed to, the FDA, oversee them. What what is How is that relationship? Is it a... I scratch your back, you scratch my back sort of a relationship? It's, it's a two-parter. It's too cozy most of the time, no question about it. And there are plenty of instances in the book in which you see the, the relationship's a little too chummy. And then when somebody leaves the FDA, and this happens all the time in government, so it's not just a drug problem, they go over to the companies that they were regulating. So the person who approved the label, for instance, for OxyContin, for, when it went on sale in 1996 at the FDA, and gave them really an extraordinary wording that said it was possibly less addictive because it had this extended coating on it that would less, last up to 12 hours, as opposed to the normal four to six for Percocet or Percodan. He then later went to work in a big executive position inside. But even back in the 1950s, I have stories where the head of the FDA's antibiotics division is corrupted by one of the Sackler founders of, uh, in terms of medical journals. He was getting hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, then a fortune, for lending his name to these editorial journals. And they would promote new antibiotics that came out. When that became public, they threw him out of office. But you know, that's an extreme example. But they're much too chummy most of the time. And then when they aren't, pharma fights them the following way. They know that the government cannot match them for dollars. They can't match them for staff or size of the employees. They're understaffed. So then they push back and the FDA just can't keep up with it. We're now hearing so much talk about the great hope that 
pharmaceutical companies uh, have, or that we put we, we infuse them with such hope that I wonder if something is found if their reputations will be somewhat resurrected in some way. Well, it, absolutely. This is a chance for them to be the you know the heroes that come in in the, the white coats and save the day. But what their DNA has been is that they always end up price gouging. Yes, Johnson and Johnson and Glaxo have said that they'll produce a vaccine if they find one it costs. But don't worry, they'll make plenty on stockpiling it when countries do, and on the annual booster shots. And we've already seen it. As a matter of fact, in the first $8.3 billion emergency funding, in which both houses, both sides of the aisle, Democrats and Republicans, and by the way, this isn't a political book, because I blame both parties in the end for having been whores for far too long to farm money and having done their bidding. In the emergency funding that just came out for the pandemic, there are $3 billion set aside as rush money into the vaccine. And then what happens? There are two clauses in there. One says the federal government will have the real ability to come in and crack down on companies if the price for the vaccine is eventually too high. And the other one gives them the ability to share all the information for research so that no single drug company will have the patent or proprietary intellectual property rights. Both of those were stripped out in the final bill. And nobody's paying attention except for those who have an, a, a sort of an eyeglass on pharma because we're all so anxious, as we should be, top priority treatments and vaccines. I want it as well. But why can't we walk and chew gum at the same time? Why can't we push them, urge them, and give them the public research money? Mitch, I, I point out in this book, the National Institutes of Health have spent since the 1930s over $900 billion on public research which the pharma companies have then taken and patented to make billions of dollars, none of it coming back to us. In AIDS, when there was a researcher at the NIH who in 1983 said, by the way, I think an antiviral could work on this. I think that they might have that over at Burroughs. He was the one who found the drug that Burroughs had a patent on. Guess what? They weren't using it. They had never made it into a drug because it was proved too toxic in the lab. So the NIH said, can you give us some so we can test it to see if it might work on HIV? Sure, Burrell said. They couldn't even make the drug in the lab because they didn't have the DNA sequence needed. So the NIH had to provide that. That's how they were unfamiliar with the drug. They sent it over to the NIH, who then does a year of testing at taxpayer expense, funded with some private money from San Francisco, and they developed AZT, the first effective treatment. Burroughs then goes to court to say, well, thanks for all the work. We own the patent. They put AZT out at $10,000 a patient, then the highest cost in the world. AIDS groups and activists and ACT UP push back so they drop the price to $8,000, still the highest. So what's the history in times of crisis like COVID in a viral pandemic like AIDS? If you had told me that you would have a drug company take public research funded money, and make it the most expensive drug around and earn billions of dollars. I would have thought that was crazy. And the same thing happened, as a matter of fact, on Truvada with Gilead and others. So we have a sequence here, all the way back to the polio vaccine, where at least Jonas Salk in the mid-50s, when asked in an interview who owned the vaccine, he said, could you patent the sun? It's public property. Well, he's a hero in my book, but he's a rare one. And what eventually happens? After his vaccine gets contaminated with the live virus, 55,000 kids fall sick in 10 Western states. The government moves over to the Sabin vaccine, Alfred Sabin, but they don't know if it's safe because it's a live vaccine. So they test it. Guess where, Mitch? In the Belgian Congo, on a million people who didn't sign consent forms, I assure you. And later there's a theory that that might have been one of the things that kicked off viruses that led to HIV. So the history of pharma at times of crisis is they come in, they provide some help, but they charge a price for it. 
it's a it's a it's a head spinning story uh, that you've written, Gerald, and it's something that you know all of us who you know obviously take take a drug for for medicinal purposes have no idea of what the history behind it is. We're now beginning to understand a little bit more about you know testing and drugs and all of that sort of thing. So, what wisdom can you give us? with your background in this, can you give us to help explain what's going on with this whole business of drug testing for COVID? Is, yeah, there, some, I, I, is there a key that you can unlock this story for us? No, I think that uh, I'm in touch every day with some of the infectious disease doctors that I interviewed in the book. And you, you know, as you said, the penultimate chapter is called The Coming Pandemic. And it ends in an interview that Trish and I did with uh, Dr. Karen Bush who had been in the business for 40 years as an infectious disease expert. And she said to us back now four years ago, it's not a question of if, it's a question of when. And she's right. And when you talk to these people, they will say, you know, we've been waiting for a virus or bacteria to sort of either jump a species as in the case of a virus, as we have now with COVID. And they sort of lay out what was going to happen. This this rush, this emergency process of not having enough for treatment, and then the crash program for a vaccine. I will tell you that they all are confident that a vaccine will be available, and that is a major thing. I mean, everybody assumes, lay people hear that a vaccine is being worked on, and they think that means one will get done. Well, let me tell you, Ebola was discovered in the 1970s, I write about it in the book, and we only got a vaccine for it last year, so it took over 40 years. AIDS from the 1980s, we still don't have a vaccine, and they've been working on variations of vaccines for years. But the reason I'm confident we will have one here, it's a coronavirus, it's a new variant of it, it's related to other coronaviruses, and the companies have felt they were been close for a while to a vaccine on a coronavirus. They almost had one on a, an epidemic in 2010, H1N1, 2009, and then they didn't finish the work because the, the bug went away. But in this case, I think we will see something in a year maybe a year from now, and maybe even for emergency cases by the end of this year. Once we get a vaccine that's safe, we truly are past this. And in the meantime, treatments, antimalarials, there'll be a whole host of them. Those are tough drugs. I just wanna let people know, they, they are not fully effective, they're hard in the system, but if you are really deathly sick, it could save lives. Well, there's one, there's one from Gilead that they've been talking about. Remdesivir showed a lot of promise. Dr. Fauci was talking about it today, and people may have missed it, but I was on, I wrote a piece, wrote a letter the other day to the New York Times, it was just published. Uh, Brett Stevens, their columnist, had a, had a column a week ago in which he said, there are no atheists in foxholes, and there should be no pharma haters in a pandemic. And I wrote to him about Gilead and remdesivir in particular, because Gilead, when it took remdesivir, has had that drug for a while, said, we're going to give it in trials for COVID. And they put it under a thing called an orphan drug status. And you think orphan drugs. I have a chapter on this. It's gaming the system at the ultimate. You take the 10 most expensive drugs in the world, eight of them are orphan drugs. They're drugs meant for small patient populations with genetic illnesses. And if you get it in while the population is still under 200,000, you get all types of tax credits and special benefits and extra patents and ways to sell it. It's meant for a tiny little group of people of cystic fibrosis. Gilead tried to game the system by putting remdesivir in as an orphan drug. It is less than 200,000 now, but it will move up over time to millions. 
And when I protested that and others who were also following it, five days later, they had a reverse course. And now they're putting it into trials the way it should be. So all I say about Gilead, Remdesivir, and everything else is God bless you. I hope you make a profit. This is the system we have. It's great and you deserve it. But just don't take advantage of it at a time when everybody's suffering. Your stores are closed. Um, people like me are lucky. We, you know, we still have a book out, although it's virtual. But I have a lot of friends who have lost jobs. Uh, the economy's in shattered. People are tightening their belts all around. We have to have the pharmaceutical industry, which makes a trillion dollars a year in business and billions in profits, also make a little bit of a sacrifice, which means they can make a profit on these great drugs they're developing to fight COVID. But they can't gouge us. That's all I'm saying. So, so explain to me the disconnect that we're having in this country about testing for COVID. Why has it been so confusing and so difficult to actually test up the way we need to be, uh, the, the way that needs to be done? Well, I mean, we, we started off, not only, we started off on the wrong foot because unfortunately the, uh, the CDC had a requirement that they had to approve. It was actually put through in the Obama administration and it was a, a requirement that I thought was a good one. Still think that generally good, maybe now we know not in times of pandemic, they have to approve the test before it goes out. And they had the basis for the test from the World Health Organization out of China fairly early on. And the test that they came up with was faulty and had problems. So they held back on that and they didn't loosen the regulations to allow all the companies who create tests to come in with tests at a very, very fast rate. So we fell behind the curve. Is that South why they couldn't buy, they couldn't buy tests from uh, South Korea and other places? So they, they could buy tests eventually and they have been buying the tests, but they're buying tests now that some of them are 70% inaccurate so they aren't getting the approval stamp still so some are approved some aren't but here's the key and south korea proved this south korea was the model for me of what you can do small country granted okay we're talking about something the size of new jersey population 50 million a little bigger than california uh, it would be great if that was the entire united states but still they had learned a lesson in 2014 they had an outbreak of an influenza they thought it was bird flu it wasn't but people went to the hospital to get tests because they didn't have testing widely available. And that's where people got sick and then they infected other people from the hospitals. It was a disaster. So as a result, when this came out, they got the immediate testing regimen sequence from the World Health Organization. Not only did they roll the test out, but their tracking was unbelievable. I don't think we would allow the privacy intrusion in the US. They got telephone and telecom companies to give them all the data on people's cell phones so that if you tested positive, Mitch, they would then put up, not your name, but they would say that this number, X4222, in Coral Gables has tested positive and this number was at this theater two weeks ago watching this film in row four and was at this gas station two days ago. So you could find out if you thought you needed a test and were in contact with somebody positive. They put a clamp on that in a way that was a little big brotherish, a little 1984, but was effective. But they also seem to have it integrated so that the tests that were taken could then be also analyzed and you could get a result fairly quickly. What seems to be, it just happened the other day where I think it was Pence talking about, you know, that he had, what, 4 million tests, but he did not mean that he had 4 million tests that could then be analyzed. And then he had to bring in private, private um, companies to be able to do the analysis. Is that because the test makers are different than the people who are doing the, the test makers? Are 
the test makers are different and also the reagents is very interesting. So reagents sounds like a, a strange thing, but reagents are the, the basis for building successful tests. Many of those come from abroad. They were coming from China. That supply chain was also broken in the beginning. So the reagents were tough to get. They were also sold at multiples at five and six times what they normally had uh, cost. So all the prices were zooming up as you could imagine. And there was no uniform buying authority that it was taking it in. So I know that France has had this problem and Germany's had it, even though both of them have done a fair amount of testing. And in Florida, where we all are, I'm, I'm amazed to me that the Florida st statistics are as poor as they are. And what I mean by poor is they aren't very transparent and they aren't very trustworthy in the sense that they measure primarily the tests that come in from hospitals. They have been excluding for a long time the private testing where 90% of the test is taking place. So it's hard to get a sense for the numbers in a particular zip code, um, how many people around you may have the infections because of the fact that we don't know how trustworthy the numbers are even of the tests that are being done. That's really interesting. That's something I didn't realize. That's why, I mean, I know that yesterday here in Florida, we had our highest rate of death than we've had yet. And they're even talking about opening things up, which I think is a mistake. But, but you know, it th begs the question, you know, and you write about it and you talk, you've talked about it and you've written about it, and maybe there is no way to prepare, but why were we so underprepared for this? Okay, so I, I, did, I wrote an article, as a matter of fact, for LitHub called the, the Near Impossibility of Preparing for a, a Viral Pandemic. You can prepare for a bacterial pandemic, and the doctors in my book talk about this all the time. They decry the fact that in 1980, there were 36 companies, European and American companies, making antibiotics, and today there are none. Uh, there are, all the antibiotics are sourced and made in China. So the problem is antibiotics aren't profitable enough. Companies instead prefer to make drugs that treat hypertension, diabetes, uh, high cholesterol, instead of making a drug that only lasts for five or seven days. So as a result of leaving behind antibiotics and all the antibiotics that used to be dispensed and antibiotic resistance grows up, if we get a new bacterial pathogen like the Black Plague, we're in a lot of trouble. And then we can blame, why weren't we ready? We can blame pharma for not having stayed on antibiotics. But when it's a viral pandemic like this, the difference is you don't know when it's going to jump from one species to another, what they call these zoonotic transmissions. You don't know when a novel virus will come up. And the only way to be prepared for it, we, we are going back to what was 100 years ago is the, the way to deal with it, which is lock ourselves up, isolate, and don't allow the virus to infect one another. Don't let it spread too much. The only way you could prepare for it would be to have a capacity built for ventilators, hospital beds, and also for, uh, let's say, uh, intensive care units that would be built for the level of a pandemic, what was going on in Italy and Spain in the last month. And then you would say that for almost every other year, when you didn't have the pandemic, you had an extra capacity of 20 or 30% in the system. There is no system that I know of that would have even a national health care system, the ability to spend its dollars or pounds, sterling, lira, euros, or whatever, on extra capacity preparing for the worst case. So we're always scrambling at that last minute for masks, for PPE, for those things. It would be great to see we had a stockpile of it, but as a practical matter, they're going to be caught short on the next pandemic in 40 years. I know that sounds so negative, but it's the way they just can't take those dollars for healthcare and prepare for the worst case scenario, knowing it may not happen for a long time. Let's hope it does. Let's hope this is resolved and it is a long, long time before something like this happens again. The, um, the book is Pharma, Greed, Lies, and the Poisoning of America. The author is 
Gerald Posner, and he's, uh, it's a real treat. If you want to take a deep dive into something that you thought you knew a little bit about, but this will surprise you at every turn. And there's nothing, I know that we often don't want to read about these things during a pandemic, but to be frank, it's very cathartic at the same time uh, during these, this period. Gerald, thanks so much for being on The Literary Life. Mitch, uh, thank you so much. And uh, I get, uh, thanks to Carmen for setting this all up. But I can't wait to, uh, Trish and I can walk through the doors in Miami Beach to books and books and then come and see you in Coral Gables, see Steve and all our friends who have always been so fantastic and get back into the books and books community. That's one of the things that we know when that happens, we truly are on the other side of this pandemic. And I can't wait for that to happen.